Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hi, and welcome back. And for this Absite review uh, lecture, we're going to talk about hepatobiliary based on the Absite Smackdown review book. There are a couple key facts, I think, in here that seem to come up routinely, and uh, let's just start it off. First, the right hepatic artery comes off the superior mesenteric artery in about 15 to 20 percent of patients. Uh, this replaced right is the most common hepatic artery variant. Uh, it usually comes up on the abscite somehow. Now, a replaced left hepatic artery comes off the left gastric artery, and it's found in the gastrohepatic ligament. It's slightly less commonly seen than a replaced right. So sometimes you get the question, what is the most common anatomic variant, arterial anatomic variant in the abdomen, and uh, the right hepatic artery off the SMA, coursing posterior to the uh, common duct. That's going to be your key, typically, for that question. Remember, the falciform ligament contains the remnant of the left umbilical vein, and that falciform ligament separates parts of the left lobe of the liver into the medial and lateral segments. So it doesn't separate the liver into a left and right lobe. It separates the left lobe into the medial and lateral segments. The ligamentum teres hepatis, that means straight line ligament of the liver, extends from the falciform. And again, that is the remnant of the obliterated left umbilical vein. It goes to the underside of the liver, kind of almost connects up to the ligamentum venosum back there, one of the fetal bypass tracts. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. Cantillay's line is this imaginary line, and that's drawn from the IVC to the gallbladder fossa, and it separates the liver into the left and right lobe. So that's Cantillay's line. Now, Cunard segments line up can be lined up with the left and right lobes, and really good to see a cartoon of that here. We have some on the Instagram page, uh, that's uh, daily.absite.fact. You can take a look there for daily absite facts with cartoons and drawings and photos. And this is a good one for that uh, because you can see more easily that the left lobe lines up with Cunard segment, segments 2, 3, and 4, and the right lobe lines up with 5, 6, 7, and 8. Remember, segment 1 is the caudate lobe. Now, the gallbladder sits typically under segments 4 and 5, and the portal triad enters its segments 4 and 5, so there's a lot of action there. Now, remember, on the test, the segments are typically written with Roman numerals instead of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 uh, that we used in the Absite Smackdown review book. Most liver tumors are supplied by the hepatic artery. And that's interesting because it's true for both primary and metastatic tumors. That also will come up a lot of the times uh, on your abscite. There's a certain relationship of the portal triad structures, typically, and uh, anteriorly, uh, most uh, ventrally, uh, the duct and artery sit. And then beneath that area are the uh, portal vein uh, and um, this uh, what we call sort of empty space. I do that because uh, my name is David and it spells out Dave. For the specific relationship, remember the most lateral structure in that uh, is the uh, duct, common duct. Uh, the artery is uh, medial to that and uh, beneath both uh, 
typically is the portal vein. A couple things. Uh, remember that the hepatic artery is the only artery in the body that naturally has a thrill. You can find it not just by cleaning off uh, the area of the porta hepatis, but also by uh, palpating it. You can feel a thrill in it. There are a couple other odds and ends that typically come up for the liver. And uh, for example, macrophages in the liver get a special name. They're called Kupfer cells. Remember that the Pringle maneuver, when you get your hand in the frame of Winslow around the structures uh, and compress them, uh, whether that be with a clamp or a Rommel tourniquet, the Pringle maneuver will not stop bleeding from a replaced left hepatic artery because that's typically not in the porta hepatis there. And it also, more importantly, won't stop bleeding from hepatic veins or the IVC because they're not there. Uh, so remember that Pringle maneuver is clamping the portal triad in the hepatoduodenal ligament. Now the portal vein is formed when the splenic vein joins the superior mesenteric vein. Uh, that's typically how it's described. Uh, however, prior to the splenic vein joining the superior mesenteric vein, the inferior mesenteric vein actually enters the splenic vein earlier. So it's the it's the area after the confluence of the splenic vein and inferior mesenteric vein. That area joins up with uh, the superior mesenteric vein and uh, forms a portal vein. So the portal vein is not formed from the uh, inferior mesenteric vein uh, and the uh, superior mesenteric vein coming together. It's not how it works. A couple other important facts about the portal vein. The portal vein delivers two-thirds of the flow, the blood flow to the liver, but that blood has less oxygen content than arterial blood. So even though the portal vein delivers two-thirds of flow, it delivers roughly half of the oxygenated vein to the liver because it's just got less oxygen content. The hepatic artery delivers the other half of oxygen and a third of blood flow. The left portal vein supplies segments 2, 3, and 4. The right portal vein supplies segments 5, 6, 7, and 8. And note that the caudate lobe, segment 1, is not included in there anywhere. Uh, there are no valves in the uh, portal system. Just remember that. Some other miscellany that comes up, miscellaneous facts. The hepatorenal syndrome is typically associated with a low urine sodium. Remember, cholangitis is the uh, clinical triad of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice. Cholangitis and hypotension, along with a change in mental status, that gets called Raynaud's pentad. And the treatment is typically IV antibiotics, fluid resuscitation, and emergent drainage of the area, including the common bile duct. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Bringing you the best for your absite review. For the test, remember that a T-tube cholangiogram with retained common bile duct stone um, seen weeks post-operatively after a lap coli or something similar, that's actually managed by radiology. They need to go in there and do a stone retrieval. The number one cause of benign biliary stricture is laparoscopic cholecystectomy, so it's iatrogenic. Uh, that came up on uh, my boards and I'll say uh, may come up on the ab site. Note that with gallbladder adenocarcinoma, 90% uh, of patients also have stones. So it's very typical to see stones in patients who are later demonstrated to have an adenocarcinoma. And in part, that's just because stones are so common. 
Now, cholecystectomy for adenocarcinoma is adequate if the lesion is confined to the mucosa. If it's not confined to the mucosa, they need a more extensive resection to include a portion of the liver. If there's grossly viable tumor from that cholangiocarcinoma, do a regional lymphadenectomy, do a wedge resection of segment 5, and you need to skeletonize that portal triad and take out all the nodes that you can find there. Remember that a porcelain gallbladder is associated with a 30 to 65% risk of cancer, and they need uh, typically a cholecystectomy. That's the treatment. Remember the hemobilia triad, and that's GI bleed in a patient with jaundice, right upper quadrant pain. It can be very challenging to figure this out. It's uh, sometimes seen after trauma, where the biliary tree and arterial system sort of heal together, making a connection and uh, it can occur very quickly. Uh, some do have a herald bleed, and there's argument about what percentage have a herald bleed, uh, where they'll bleed and then stop, and then they have a significant bleed later. So that bleed, that early bleed, heralds the bleed later on. The workup and treatment for this is an arteriogram. When it comes to the gallbladder, Remember that the gallbladder just concentrates bile. It doesn't make bile. And it does that by active absorption of sodium and chloride, and then water follows. So it has a, an active pump, and then a water will follow that, concentrate the bile. Hepatic adenoma, there's about a 10% rupture and bleed rate. They do have malignant potential. A liver scan will show that as a cold nodule, and the presence of hepatic adenoma is an indication for resection. Hepatic hemangioma, there's no resection typically unless they're giant or symptomatic or consumptive. And that gets a name when seen in children. kassebach merritt syndrome is this consumptive coagulopathy or even congestive heart failure due to a hemangioma. Uh, that can be seen in children, uh, but it also uh, can be seen in uh, older patients. Amoebic abscess is another hot topic that uh, comes up that's uh, interesting to discuss. The treatment is metronidazole and typically not surgical. Uh, these may have an anchovy paste appearance. Initial therapy for an amoebic abscess is again medical treatment with a goal of eliminating the organism from the uh, intestinal tract, uh, the liver, and the abscess. Um, flagyl, metronidazole, has replaced chloroquine and uh, emetine. It's typically 400 milligrams of metronidazole, TID, for four days. That's combined with percutaneous aspiration of the cyst if necessary. Patient is not considered for surgical treatment until that intestinal phase is controlled. And medical therapy should precede aspiration by several days at least. Typically, aspiration is not required and the abscess just resolves with medication. That's very different than a hyatid cyst or an echinococcal cyst. These are the ones that have the positive Cassoni skin test, positive indirect hemagglutination, and the treatments for section, the pericystectomy, try not to rupture the cyst. Hepatocellular cancer, well, it uh, is often cited in the review books as the number one cancer worldwide. Uh, the incidence is changing with uh, drugs available for hepatitis C. Uh, there may be high alpha-fetoprotein, uh, chronic hep B and hep C. Those are the number one causes. But it is associated with cirrhosis from any cause. Just that constant uh, scarring and inflammation can lead to cancer. The fibrolamellar variant has better prognosis. Most liver tumors derive blood supply, like we mentioned earlier, from that hepatic arteries. Just keep that in mind for these. 
Remember, factor eight, von Willebrand's factor, is not made in the liver, and it's associated with the endothelium of blood vessels, it's the key factor not made in the liver. Factor five, Leiden, however, is the only factor made completely in the liver. Its levels are sometimes used to determine the function of a transplanted liver because of that. Uh, and it's, uh, you give a post-transplant patient uh, uh, P, uh, FFP, uh, it can be challenging to track uh, their INR as a endpoint of function. And for that, result, uh, for that reason, staff will sometimes send a factor five Leiden level to indicate function of the transplanted liver. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Water-soluble vitamins come up a lot too, and the only water-soluble vitamin stored in the liver is B12. Otherwise, the liver stores a lot of fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. About three-fourths of the liver by weight can be safely removed without sacrificing function. Of course, that's in a non-serotic liver. Remember, hemoglobin, uh, which comes up for the hemoglobin degradation pathway as it forms bile eventually, hemoglobin is degraded to heme, biliveridin, and then finally bilirubin. Bilirubin gets conjugated to glucuronic acid by glucuronal transferase in the liver and then gets secreted into bile. Other miscellaneous facts are important too, like vinyl chloride exposure. Vinyl chloride is a carcinogen. It can cause cancer specifically in the lung and the liver and the brain. It's a chemical used in the plastics industry. Exposure to vinyl chloride has been linked to the development of angiosarcoma of the liver. Another important fact that a lot of review books include, uh, like Absite Smackdown, is that complications related to laparoscopic cholecystectomy uh, can come up and are sometimes tested. Uh, the quoted mortality is low, just less than 1%, morbidity about 3%. Complications include bleeding, infection, risks associated with general anesthetic, injury to the biliary tree and surrounding organs, and injury to vascular structures. Uh, there are also risks which are unique to the laparoscopic techniques, uh, like extra peritoneal insufflation, a gas embolism, and trocar-induced injuries. Complications are typically classified into two major categories, intraoperative and postoperative. Intraoperative is something like damage to the biliary tree, and if that's recognized intraoperatively, you should repair it if possible. Uh, some staff can do it through the laparoscope if they're comfortable, or some convert to open, depending on the skills of the surgeon and the indications. Indications for conversion for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy include uh, inadequate visualization of anatomy for whatever reason, and uh, technical complications due to loss of video, etc. Now, while those are intraoperative issues, there are also postoperative complications. And uh, these include uh, focus on early recognition, early repair, uh, and um, proper identification of biliary anatomy prior to undertaking a reoperation. Uh, that can be with ERCP, etc. So the focus here again on post-operative complication is diagnosis and diagnosis early. A high index of suspicion is important. Patients may have unusually persistent abdominal pain, hyperbilirubinemia, signs of cholangitis. In the case of common duct injury, typically a hepaticojejunostomy will be used for repair. 
And a HIDA scan or an ultrasound of the biliary fossa can be a useful adjunct in addition to a thorough physical and blood tests. Remember, ERCP can be useful for stenting cystic duct leaks uh, or removing retained stones without the need for a surgical intervention. And that covers a lot of post-operative issues, that ERCP. It can also be used uh, to diagnose biliary stricture or an anastomotic leak. When it comes to the treatment of hepatic metastases from colon cancer, uh, remember about 50% of patients with GI tumors have hepatic mets on autopsy, so more than uh, we typically think of. Reasonable long-term survival without recurrence can be obtained in patients with colon cancer, metastatic to the liver, uh, via resection. Primary rectal and Wilms tumors uh, can also be good candidates for liver resection. And the indications for hepatic resection of metastases include control of the primary tumor uh, being accomplished or anticipated, uh, no systemic metastases or abdominal carcinomatosis. Patient will tolerate it, uh, meaning a proper patient selection, make sure the patient can tolerate this resection, and the extent of hepatic involvement such that a resection and total removal of the metastasis is possible. Those are the uh, key factors and considerations for hepatic resection of metastasis. If a hepatic metastasis is discovered during a colon resection and it's resectable without anticipated major blood loss, it should be removed at that time. Otherwise, resection should be delayed about two months, at which time a CT scan and angiography can be carried out to assess resectability. Of the 20% of patients with colorectal cancer having hepatic metastases, about a quarter of these, a fourth of these, are potentially resectable, and half are not resection candidates because of other metastasis. <clears throat> Long-term survival may not be influenced by the interval of, between resection of the primary lesion and the resection of a liver metastasis. Resection of a metastatic hepatic lesion should include a one centimeter margin of normal tissue and can include resection of up to four metastatic lesions without affecting survival. Five-year survival rates of 33% have been achieved for patients with hepatic resections uh, for limited hepatic mets secondary to colon cancer. In non-resectable cases, palliative debulking procedures may be indicated for control of pain associated with hepatic neoplasm. Dearterialization and radiographically indicated embolization can be beneficial in some cases. When it comes to retained common bile duct stone, the abscite will sometimes examine us on this too. These are best treated by endoscopic sphincterotomy, where the success rate is about 90%, the mortality is low at about 1% to 1.5%. Now, extraction of stones greater than 1.5 centimeters in diameter is seldom possible. So if these are seen on imaging, uh, stones greater than 1.5 centimeters, don't anticipate being able uh, to remove that stone. And uh, many staff say don't attempt extraction of stone when they're that big, that large, because it just won't occur. In a Billroth II reconstruction and in a distal common bile duct stricture, a surgical approach may be necessary. In the case of a Billroth II, that's because uh, getting uh, to that area endoscopically can be really challenging. 
and in a distal common duct stricture, it'll be challenging to cannulate the duct and thread the apparatus up there to remove the stone. And even if you are able to, removing the stone out through that area will be difficult. Contraindications to endoscopic stone removal, duodenal diverticulate, uh, owing to perforation risk, and uh, that's relative. Many centers uh, will go ahead and try with those in place. Coagulation disorders, recent pancreatitis, those are contraindications to endoscopic stone removal. Now, extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy is an option. Uh, that's an option when the stones are too large to extract via the endoscopic approach. If stones are noted on T-tube cholangiogram following a common bile duct exploration, five general approaches are possible with a T-tube in place and some time to allow that T-tube tract to mature. So again, this is, these are approaches when you do a T-tube cholangiogram because you've left a T-tube in place after a common bile duct exploration. So those T-tubes give you options after a common bile duct exploration. Many people will leave them uh, owing to stricture, uh, owing to uh, risk of post-operative issues after a common bile duct exploration. So here are five general approaches once you've left the T-tube after your common bile duct exploration. Uh, small stones may be watched since the majority will remain asymptomatic, and if they're not, they may be surgically extracted. Uh, you can flush or chemically dissolve with Catmull 8210 uh, stone. A mechanical extraction under x-ray uh, using a dormia basket uh, can be attempted, and that's about a 90-96% success with a mature T-tube tract. Uh, endoscopic retrieval with a transduodenal papillotomy uh, can be attempted, and that's if the T-tube approach is unsuccessful. And operative intervention is an option. Remember, after common duct exploration, it's very standard to leave a T-tube in place to be able to have these options. Some do feel T-tubes can cause stricture long-term, but on balance, uh, it's much more useful owing to risks and benefits to have one in place after a common duct exploration for all the reasons we talked about. Success rate for clearance of the duct when multiple stones are present uh, is uh, low when performed by endoscopy. So uh, the chance that the duct will be cleared when there are multiple stones there uh, is low uh, when endoscopy is performed. In those situations, a cholidocolithotomy with cholidocoduodenostomy is the uh, procedure of choice. When it comes to the gallbladder, there are also certain anatomic factors that get uh, reviewed and tested on the abscite. First, the gallbladder does not have a submucosa. Second, the submucosa is composed of columnar epithelium, uh, specialized for the absorption of water and concentration of bile. These uh, sinuses, called Rokotansky-Ashkov sinuses, develop from the epithelium through the fibromuscular layer as a result of inflammation and increased intraluminal pressure in the gallbladder. Conditions which cause that include cholecystitis. Characteristics of cholesterol in the bile also gets tested at times. Now remember, characteristics of cholesterol in bile include the fact that it is predominantly synthesized in the liver. Uh, bile is predominantly synthesized in the liver, uh, and the rate of synthesis in the liver is regulated through a negative feedback system. Total body cholesterol synthesis is inhibited by high cholesterol intake. So this is a characteristic of cholesterol uh, in bile. 
Dietary cholesterol provides an insignificant amount to the overall bile pool. So this typically isn't the same cholesterol that you take in, at least not directly. Cholesterol gallstones comprise approximately 70% of all gallstones. Maintenance of cholesterol in solution, rather than having it form stones, is dependent upon sufficient amounts of bile salts and phospholipids. Alterations in this balance result in a relative increase in the concentration of cholesterol and may result in the precipitation of cholesterol as stones. The major vehicle for the transport and maintenance of cholesterol in solution are micelles. These micelles account for approximately 30% of the biliary cholesterol transport. The remainder is carried in a vesicular form. Those vesicles have lipid bilayers similar to cell membranes. The precipitation of cholesterol, which may eventually form stones, is in part regulated by glycoproteins found within the mucus secreted in the gallbladder. So those are your headlines and factoids from the hepatobiliary section of the review book, uh, Abcite Smackdown. I appreciate you uh, going through it with me today. Hopefully you'll find this useful for your review. And remember, uh, you can find the podcast on uh, SoundCloud uh, with uh, Project Smackdown team uh, doing ongoing podcasts there. And I appreciate uh, the uh, publisher for uh, Abcite Smackdown asking me to come in and go through some of the review book with you. I hope you find this uh, version of the podcast useful when you're driving. You can visit us on absitesmackdown.com. And as my colleagues at the podcast and Project Smackdown always say, hashtag Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.